Perhaps at an anniversary or a birthday or an event, you have ventured down south to Houston to a family-owned restaurant called Taste of Texas. Anyone know it? West side of Houston, about I-10 and Beltway 8. I'm just giving you recommendations. Steakhouse, family-owned. We lived for about 15 years just a click north of there, and it was close. We didn't frequent it because it was so expensive, but it's a great place to go for party, anniversary, etc. It's owned by a guy named Ed Hendy. Um, He and his wife have owned this family business for a a long time. I got to know Ed just a little bit when my oldest was four years old and playing soccer. His His grandson was playing soccer on the same team, and Ed coached the team, and you find out a lot about people when they coach kids, and um, Ed is a good man. He's also a godly man. He fears the Lord, runs his business in that way. Ed had a rough day on April 15th, 2015. He and a couple of colleagues were on their piston jet, piston plane, prop plane, uh, coming back from business, and as is always a possibility when you're flying, Houston, uh, Houston weather was bad, and so they had to stop in Lufkin and didn't make it all the way to Houston that day uh, on the 14th. And so they stayed over in Lufkin, Texas. And then the next morning they get up, there's three of them, and they get up, they go to the airstrip and the guy puts more fuel in the plane and they take off. Just like Ed had taken off many times before, pilot of many hours, he's logged, knows what he's doing. They get up in the air and something's not right. They're operating, according to Ed, at about half power, and they get up um, to the low clouds in front of them, and the left engine shuts down. And about 45 seconds later, when they get to the top of the clouds between Lufkin and Diabol, there's the right engine that fails. Double engine failure in 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 the clouds. And I will get to the rest of the story later, but what happened? Why was there double engine failure? There was double engine failure because the guy who put fuel in the piston engine plane should have put aft gas in the plane, and he put jet fuel in the plane. See, the proper fuel is important. And I would tell you, if you know Jesus that the proper fuel that powers the Christian life is important too. What kind of fuel are you using to power your life? We learned last week that even the Apostle Paul tried to use his own power, and when he tried to use his own power, he said what? He said, the very thing that I want to do, I can't do. I do the very thing I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, what will deliver me from this body of death? When he tried to power his own Christian, maturing, mature life as the Apostle Paul, he fell short. He crashed and burned, and we found out earlier in chapter 7 and in chapter 6 a few weeks ago that the law doesn't do it either. either. The law doesn't really power the Christian life. The law is good, we said last week. The law is a guide. The law is a mirror. The law is a magnet that shows us who God's character is, but it doesn't have any power, and we crash and burn when we try to live a law-driven life. And we came to the end of chapter 7 and saw some good news, where Paul says, thanks be to God, who has given us Christ Jesus our Lord. And we're going to come to chapter 8 this morning, and we were going to see the primary fuel in which God grants us that we might live lives powered 
empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit in Scripture is the fuel that propels the Christian life. It's impossible to live out the Christian life without the Spirit of God at work in you. And maybe you're here this morning and go, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. You know, I kind of just... I have a hard time with the Holy Spirit. I have a hard time because I I can't figure it out. It's kind of this subjective thing. And maybe you look at the Holy Spirit, whether you realize it or not, as some force like in Star Wars. Or maybe you look at it as some magic carpet like in Aladdin. Or maybe you just have different kinds of experiences. Maybe you grow up in a home where everything was the Holy Spirit and it was weird and it was strange. Or maybe you grew up in a home, or you had experiences from afar watching people with the Holy Spirit, and you're like, I don't want any part of whatever that weird thing is. And so you functionally live like a deist. You know, we're theists. We believe in God. And yet sometimes in the Christian life, we look at the pages of Scripture and say, okay, I'm going to do this. And we functionally live like deists, where we don't realize that God has given us power, has given us a helper, has given us an advocate in the Holy Spirit. And maybe you're just going, I don't know how that works. I, I believe the truths of the Scripture about the Holy Spirit, but I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to understand it better. I'm glad you're here. Romans 8 is all about the Spirit's work in our lives and how it powers the Christian life. And when I say the Spirit, I mean the third person of the Trinity. He's not lesser than the Father or the Son. He is God. That God helps us power the Christian life. We don't just pull our bootstraps up. We don't just follow laws, but our lives are powered. And maybe you're in that Romans 7 place that we talked about last week. Maybe you're in the place where you're saying, wretched man or woman that I am, who can deliver me from the sin that is entrapping me, that nobody knows about? I'm glad you're here because Romans 8 gives you hope. It gives you assurance. It shows you how to live this Christian life, not on your own, but by the power of of the Spirit. So turn there, Romans 8. I think it's page 943 or 44. We haven't moved too many pages in the Bible on your seat there. And this is a beautiful chapter. Maybe you've bookmarked it yourself. But there are bookends to this chapter that start with, there's no condemnation, praise God, and there's no separation from Christ. This is a beautiful text. I know we went fast last week. We went through Romans 7 in one week. We're going to spend three weeks in Romans 8. So let me read Romans 8. Actually, we're going to start just for a little context in chapter 7, verse 24, and we will go all the way to Romans 8, 17 today. 7, 24. Look at it with me. Wretched, this is Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. Remember the battle we talked about? Chapter 8, verse 1, here it is. There is therefore now, here it is, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Amen? From the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, this is beautiful, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. For those who are in the flesh can't please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Notice how many times the word spirit is here. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of the righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give, this is amazing, life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh who live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Look at this relational language. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. First, from verses 1 through 4, I want to show you this amazing truth for life that you can take into your this afternoon and tomorrow. The first point from the first four verses is this, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit drops the charges on you and totally clears your record. Do you see it there? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Condemnation is the, it's a legal term. It's a legal term like the courtroom. We've been talking about that. If you've joined us in Romans, we've been talking about this other big word, justification. It's a legal term that before God, God justifies you. He makes you right. It's like the courtroom scene where someone is acquitted, where God declares you right. It's not because of something you've done, but because of what he's done for you. That you are not condemned, but Jesus takes your condemnation upon himself. The innocent is condemned. The guilty is set free. This is what Christ has done for you. There's no condemnation. The charges are dropped, and you are completely, none, no condemnation, not just a little bit, not a lot. Oh, I sinned again, so there's confirmation. Now, let me clarify something really important about this text. What often we do with a text like this is we twist it, and we say, I'm living this sinful lifestyle, and it's okay because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say there's no sin Okay? He says there's no condemnation. We still sin, and we need to confess our sin and walk with Christ. But it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, if you will, for a lifestyle of sin. God wants us to live for him. But it's in the same family, the idea of justification, that God makes you right. You're not condemned. And if you're standing in a courtroom and you're not condemned, there is relief, and there is joy, and there is celebration. You're meant to sing. You're meant in that to sing and give praise to God for what he's done for you. It says the law of the Spirit frees you. Do you see it there? It sets you free. 
The Spirit's work is to drop the charges against you and totally, completely clear your record even as you move forward. Not just today, he clears your record. There's great assurance for us right here in the pages of Scripture. But who is this promise applied to? Because he, says, he doesn't just say there's no condemnation for everyone. He says there's no condemnation for who? For those who are, what's the phrase? In Christ, who are united to him, Romans 6, who belong to him, Romans 7. And this is a glorious truth if you know Jesus. This is a terrifying truth if you don't yet know Christ. It's a terrifying truth because the opposite is actually true, that you are condemned, that you stand condemned before God without Christ. So I'd ask you this morning, friend, to consider, to consider who Christ is and what Christ has done for you on a cross to forgive you of your sins, that you might have life, that you might have forgiveness that you might know him, that he would call you to himself. See, the Holy Spirit drops the charges, clears our record, but oftentimes, what happens? I mean, we're in this section about how we walk with the Lord in chapter 6 through 8, and so when I sin against God, oftentimes I get in this place of self-condemnation. Anybody else? You're like, man, I'm a wretch I get like Romans 7 where Paul says, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. There's this battle. And I often condemn myself. And it's good and right to stop and confess your sin, but self-condemnation, man, Satan loves that in your life. He wants to defeat you. He wants to keep you in that place. When I think about this, and I think about Jesus and what he does for us in that place, I think about the apostle Peter. Remember Peter, he comes, he jumps out of the boat and he trusts in Jesus early in Jesus' ministry and he comes full forward from the boat and a couple years later, he, he denies and curses Jesus by the fire and he's sitting there by the fire and then what happens next? Jesus is raised from the dead and Peter knows that he's raised from the dead. He sees him, he experiences him and then you get to this place right at the end of John. And I don't think Peter, I think Peter understands that Jesus is raised, but I don't think Peter thinks that Jesus came for him. Because he goes fishing. There are all the disciples are gathered. He goes, you know what? I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to get the barnacles off the old fishing boat. And I'm going to take up fishing again. And I'm going to go back to that profession because I denied Jesus. I think in that moment, there is a lot of self-condemnation to go, I deny Jesus, he doesn't want me. Even though he's raised, he, he, he doesn't need me, he doesn't want me. There's self-condemnation. And what does he do? He gets a couple of disciples and he goes out into the boat that night and they catch nothing. And I think that's a great picture of when we are self-condemning of ourselves. even though Jesus accepts us, there's no fruit. And sure enough, he doesn't catch any fish. And what happens early in the morning? They're near the shore, and there's a guy walking on the shore, and he calls out, and he said, did you catch anything? And I don't think they know yet. And then he says, what? Cast your nets on the other side. And they cast their nets on the other side, and they catch all these fish, and then Peter knows. He knows at that point that Jesus has come back, not only being raised from the dead, but comes back for him. 
and he leaps out of the boat, and he comes and sits by Jesus, and they eat because Jesus already had some fish. And then he pulls Peter aside. Do you love me? I'm your friend. Still not feeling worthy. Do you love me? I'm your friend. Do you love me? Jesus, I love you. Jesus restores him. And maybe you need to hear that this morning. And self-condemnation because of sin, whether known or unknown, maybe you need to hear you can come back. If Peter can come back, you can come back. Maybe you've put up your nets. You've put them up because you think whatever you've done is too much for Jesus. He wants you to throw them out. And maybe you're going, man, I'm trying, but maybe you're just trying a little bit. Maybe you're, you're just kind of surface throwing the net out. Maybe you need to take a deeper dive and let the nets go down deep for the Holy Spirit to do work in your life that he wants to do. See, the Spirit drops the charges against us and clears us of our record. He fuels this heart change. You need to tap into what he wants to do in your life. He also fuels something. He fuels, in verses 5 through 8, he fuels the way we ought to think. You're thinking the way that you think. Look at it there, verse 5 through 8. There's a contrast. Do you see it? If you live according to the flesh, flesh is not your skin. Flesh is the idea of the old man that we talked about, the sinful nature that we have. If you live according to the flesh, you set your what? Minds on the things of the flesh. So if your mind's on the things of the flesh, or, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So he sets up this contrast between thinking, having a mindset of the flesh, having a mindset of the Spirit, and then he gives us what each of those things produce. Look at the flesh. What does it produce? If your mind is set on the flesh, it produces death. It produces hostility to God. It says you can't even submit to God if your heart and your mind is focused on the flesh. And then the spirit, look at it. The heart, the mind set on the spirit is life and peace and freedom. And I think he is speaking about a person who knows God and who, a person who doesn't know God. See, not only does the spirit drop the charges against you and clear you of your record, but it does something else in the life of a believer. It helps you get your mind right. You ever, anybody ever said that to you? You said that to your kids? Turn your brain on. <laughs> get your mind right. The Holy Spirit helps you think rightly. You think about the Word of God that in Ephesians chapter 6, it gives us the the armor of God, there's that one offensive weapon. It's the Word of God. But what is the Word of God empowered by? It's the sword. That's the Bible. The Word of the Spirit. The Spirit empowers the Word in your life and in my life. I want to stop just for a minute and, and talk about the flesh. Like if, if you don't yet know Christ, you don't have the ability that the Spirit provides you to live for Christ you know, Spurgeon says it this way. He says, people may wish to wash away the old nature. They may clothe it. They may educate it. But no evolution can produce grace out of nature. 
And so maybe you're here and you don't yet know Christ. The beauties of the gifts of the Spirit aren't yet yours. The peace that passes all understanding, the freedom, life, it's not yet yours. And I want to speak to those who know Jesus for a minute, though, because many of you rightfully want to engage people that you know and love who don't yet know Christ, and you want to engage them with the truth of the gospel, that God might turn those lights on for them, that they might see Christ for who he is. And there's a warning, I think, here for us. Here's what you need to realize. When you're online and you're arguing with somebody about something like abortion or how justice should go in our culture or about whatever it is, and you can't figure out how your logic doesn't make sense to them. (laughs) See, this text reminds you that their hearts are hostile. They're not listening because their hearts aren't changed toward the things of God. And you should do apologetics, and you should engage them in those ways. That's right and good, but you need to know it's the gospel that brings power to the situation. The gospel brings power to their lives. It changes them, that they might see like you see. So don't get offended when someone doesn't think the way you think as a Christian in the world. This text might say this to you. Understand the reasons in which they think the way they think. Is it God hasn't done that work yet? And so rather than arguing ad nauseum, getting upset, they don't have the power of the Spirit to open the door to understand the Word and God's view of the world, the frame in which God frames the world by His Word. And so it ought to make you more compassionate and thoughtful with people who don't yet believe because it's the gospel that's the power of God. But I want to talk a little bit more about the mind and what the New Testament says about the mind. We do weird things with the mind. In our culture, we we talk about clearing our mind. The Bible says something different that we do with our mind than clear it from anything. It says in Romans 12 that what we need to do in Romans 12, just a few pages to your right there, and it'll be on your screen. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Here it is. It says, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your emotions, your feelings. No. Your heart? No, your mind. Renew your mind. Don't empty your mind. Renew your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And earlier, I just I, I, I talked about the importance of God's Word and how God's Word is empowered by the Spirit of God. Can I ask you a question? What occupies your mind? What preoccupies your mind? When you have a moment, when you're off the screen, or maybe when you're even on the screen, what do you think about? You know, the Bible over and over and over talks about the importance of knowing the mind of God, of having the same mind as Christ. Philippians 2, 5, who humbled himself on a cross. Philippians 4, 
whatever is true, whatever is right, what is noble. Kids, you can sing the song with me. Noble repute. Think about those things to fill your mind, not in like a Tony Robbins or Eckhart Tolle way, to fill your mind with Scripture, God's words that we might know how to live. And maybe you are here and you're going, well, you know, I don't, I don't know how to read the Bible. I don't know how to understand it. Man, the, the Word of God empowered by the Spirit is everything for a Christian. You need to open it up and study it and understand it. And here's the thing. If you are in that place and going, I don't know how to understand it. I read it, and it doesn't make that much sense to me. And I want to learn, and I want to grow. We're here to help you. And you're going, what is this stack of books here? I'm just going to go through some stuff. Let's make this real practical. Do you have a study Bible? If you, if you don't have a study Bible, you need to get a study Bible. There are great thinkers of our day who know God and his word. This is an ESV study Bible. I love it. There are great notes in here. As you read something, you're going, I don't know what that means. Who are the Nephilim? Like, what is that? What, what does Jesus mean when he says something? And there's great notes for, and, and I would say this is a trusted resource. There's a lot of non-trusted resources out there. This is helpful for you to, to know the, there's emphasis in the Bible about the community of faith and how we help each other learn and grow and be equipped. Find you first a good study Bible. All this is going to be up here after. If you, want to, if you want some resources, good resources, recommended resources, ESV study Bible, CSB study Bible, here's another one. You can find this uh, online as well if you want to lug this around. Uh, there are, all these notes are, are found in, if you've got an iPad or something like that. If you don't yet know Jesus, but you are exploring, um, or you're a young believer, man, there's some great resources. A friend of mine named Jonathan uh, Brooks just put together this a uh, little devotional about Christ's life and what that looks like. It's a great resource for you to t- either take someone who doesn't know Jesus or is a young believer through it. There's a great way to know, how do I live this Christian life? Great resources for us. If, if you're going, hey, I know we're in Romans, but I don't understand the big picture. You, you get up on Sunday morning and you pull things from other places in the Bible, so I don't really have the big picture of the Scripture. How do I kind of learn how to palm the Bible, if you will, whether you can palm a basketball or not? I can't. Clarifying the Bible. This guy does a great job. A few of you have asked for, hey, give me the big picture. Clarifying the Bible is a great tool. There's a lot of great tools out there. That one's on DVD. There's another one called Talk Through the Bible. This one's been around a long time. Just gives you the big picture so that when you're in a different place of the Bible, different places in the Bible, that you can make sense of where you're at. And I would also tell you that I often use this. It's a dictionary. It's, it's, it's like a dictionary of the Bible, which gives you, if you're like, I don't know what that word means, or, uh, you know, tell me more about Thessalonica or Rome. Like, there's all kinds of resources for you. And there's, they're all digital. I'm old school, so I just have it all in print. And so when they take all of our digital stuff, you can come see me. Um, I'm just kidding. If you want to know more about the Holy Spirit, for example, uh, that we're talking about today, there's great resources on theology. And don't get scared. It's not, a, not, it's not a bad word. Theology to go, hey, if I want to learn about who Christ is and all the things that he teaches about himself, the Bible teaches about, if I want to learn about the Spirit, what the Bible says about the Spirit, there's a whole section in here. So if you're an engineer, by the way, and you like, like linear and thought and boxes, like this is great for you. It's a great resource to go. If I want to learn everything about the spirit that you're talking about today, I can go and find a chapter for that. I've had a number of people, I'm just going to keep going. I want to give you tools. I want you to come to the word 
and, and be equipped. That's what the Bible says, that it's the job of the pastor to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. We want to help. Um, a number of people have asked, uh, even as we've been in Romans, about little devotionals or ways to study along. Um, John MacArthur has these little booklets all the way through the Bible. Any book of the Bible, some of you have seen these, you've used them in your small groups. John MacArthur has these, and what it does is it, it asks questions about the text so that in a small group or on your own or with your spouse, and you can come to this and, and understand better. Uh, Jared Wilson in Romans, Crossway has these all the way through the Bible. There's so many good resources, y'all. Anytime you want resources to help you learn the scriptures, there's another resource that I didn't give you this morning. I know this is a fire hose. Come see after. There's a great book called Living by the Book. If you want to open the Bible and go, how do I make sense of this without notes? And I, I really want to dig in. Um, Living by the Book. It teaches you how to observe a text, to interpret a text, and then apply a text to your life. And so we are here um, as, as a, I'm here as a pastor, as elders, to help you learn. But the Word is central. It's central for you to get your mind right. It's central for us as believers to be renewed regularly by the word. How often do you open the word of God that it might, through the Spirit's work, give you knowledge and understanding and wisdom? We live in a crazy world. We've always lived in a crazy world. But maybe now, more than ever, truth. Truth from God's word, driving your life, helping you frame your life more so than CNN or Fox News or whatever app you got that tells you whatever silly thing or truth that they want to push toward you. We got to put that junk away sometimes. And we got to come back to the Word of God to define life and ministry that we might walk with Him. All right, soapbox, done. So your mind. We're going to get our mind right through the Holy Spirit. Also, the Holy Spirit's presence brings us, here's your third idea, real help and change to our lives. The main idea in, in this section is this. It makes our lives look, look more like Jesus. And this is really where it's at. Man, I've got this thing that I'm struggling with in life. How do I change? You see, look at verse 9 through 13-ish, and you see that the Spirit of God, you see that He dwells. You see that phrase? You see it two or three times. You see it in verse 9. You see it in verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from that dwells in you, He gives you life. He dwells in you. Another time at the very end of 11. What does that mean, He dwells with you? It means God's Spirit lives inside of you. This is what Jesus says. Do you remember at the end of Jesus' ministry or getting closer to the end of Jesus' ministry? Who does Jesus start talking about? He starts talking about the Holy Spirit. Hey, I'm going to go and the Spirit's going to come. If you're the disciples, you're going, hey, I'm good with you being here. I, 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 don't, I don't know what that's going to be like, but I'd rather you stay. But Jesus says, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to dwell within you. And he's going to give you all truth. And he's going to be your helper, your paraclete, your helper, your advocate, the one who convicts you of sin. He's going to come. It's right that he comes. Notice with the Trinity. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends then the Spirit into our lives that we might grow. And so the Spirit's present. It brings us real help. See, the Spirit indwells us. The ministry of the Spirit 
indwells us. And not only does he indwell us, the New Testament says he often will fill us. And this is where some people go, uh-oh, now you're getting, you're getting off on something. He fills us with his spirit, and, it's usually, and, and, and the way in which he fills us is if when we are yielded in obedience, I said it, obedience brings about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And not only can he fill us, but in a negative way when we sin against God or sin against others, the Bible says that we can quench and we can grieve the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but it certainly means that there is a grieving and lack of fellowship that we have with God that when we confess and come back, that that is restored. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 14. If you just want to learn more about the Spirit from Jesus, John 14 through 16 are three really great chapters to learn that. But in John 14, Jesus says this about the promised Spirit. I think we have it here. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, he's speaking to his disciples, and he will give you another paraclete, helper, to be with you, how long? Forever. Even the Spirit of truth, he will guide us in truth, whom the world can't receive because it is neither sees him or knows him. Mindset on the flesh. You know him, for he dwells. He dwells with you, and he will be with you. See, the Spirit of God is not some mystical force. It's not some magical genie. It's not some impersonal third wheel of the Trinity. The Nicene Creed says it this way, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. Do you believe that? It's the Spirit's work that can change us. And it also, in this text, if you look at verses 12 and 13, it's the Spirit, and here it is from chapter 7, it's the Spirit that helps us see the phrase, put to death. The Spirit's works helps us mortify. It helps us put to death our sin. Remember in chapter 7? The very thing that I don't want to do, I do. Paul's relying on his own strength. Strength, And here he says, no, the the Holy Spirit will help you put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's the role. So if you are struggling with sin, which we all struggle with, the Spirit empowers us to put to death the deeds of the Spirit. Not only that, it brings life when you pursue Christ and who he is and what he's done. You begin to get satisfied with new things, not the old things number of years ago, um, well, really all of our marriage, my wife has been trying to get me to eat squash and most vegetables. I grew up on a ranch, and we killed uh, deer and cattle, and we had two ice boxes full of meat. So we ate meat, and we ate potatoes and beans. That's, that was the diet of three boys, all right? And so then I meet my beautiful wife, and she introduces me to vegetables, um, and I didn't really like vegetables, so she would cook different things. She would put things in casseroles, especially squash. I'm like, I know there's squash in there. I can taste it. Good try. And then it happened. <laughs> she decided to do this plant-based diet, and I said, I'll do it for a week, and I did it, and I felt a lot better because I'm getting older. I felt a lot better. I'm like, I'm going to do it for another week. And another week, and another week, and we did it for quite a while. We did it for about a year. I'm not in it anymore. But you know what it did? As I pursued it, and I was disciplined about it, 
It changed my taste buds. I eat squash now. Y'all, that's the work of the Spirit in my life. I'm just kidding. I, I like squash. I mean, give me a little olive oil and, you know, some sugar. I like asparagus. So here's the deal. When we get in these patterns of sin in our lives, it's what we desire, but whatever we feed will breed and grow. But when we shut it off, when we ask God, Spirit, would you work in my life to shut this off? And we begin to establish new patterns in the way of living by the Spirit changes what we want. It helps us see the joy of obedience, the joy of walking with Jesus, and that can be contagious too. See, the Holy Spirit's presence brings real help and real change to our lives. What fuel are you using? Well, one more beautiful truth. Man, Romans is so rich. I, every time I, I look up, and I don't have enough time, but I'm going to make time. Verse 14 through 17 show us a beautiful truth about something even more fundamental than getting our minds right and bringing change. And this you ought to feel in your bones if you know Jesus, so let's look at it. You see this picture of God, the Father, through his Spirit, granting us Granting us, here's your point, sonship into God's family with benefits, meaning you are a spiritual orphan and he has adopted you into his family. And if you know how adoption works, it's the parents who call the child into the family. It's not the orphan who says, I want to be in that family, but it's the father and the mother. And this is how it works spiritually in your life and mine. That it's the Spirit of God who grants you, who grants you sonship, who grants you adoption into the Father's family. It's a beautiful truth. And here's the thing with full benefits, not just partial benefits. Let me give you a little background about Roman adoption in that day. So when the people that are reading this for the first time, they're reading about Paul talking about this adoption as sons and sonship and these phrases, heirs into God's family, what, what, what they were thinking, because that really frames the way we need to think about this as well. See, in Roman law, um, let me tell you how adoption worked. It was often someone who had some money who did not have an heir, who hadn't, didn't have kids who did not have an heir to the family, and they would adopt either a child or a youth or even an adult usually a son in that day, and I'll get to that, a son. And what that adoptive father and mother would do is they would take on any debts. Any debts that that child or youth or adult had, they would wipe out all the debts. They would set them free from the debts that they have when they come into the family. They would give them a new name, a completely new name, a family name. And they would take on the liability of being a parent to take care of anything that came in that child's life. And then they would give them new obligations and new responsibilities. That's how it works. So when you read this text with that in mind, look at it. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery or fall back into fear, for you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. That's the context in which they would read this. And so a number of things change. 
when you become an adopted son or daughter. See, your identity completely changes. Your intimacy with the Father changes. Your identification and your inheritance completely changes. Do you see it? See, when you look at verse 14, you see this identity change. And there's a reason, ladies, just uh, to unpack this a little bit. He says, sons, what about daughters? (laughs) See, remember in that day, it was the son, usually the eldest son, who received the inheritance. Okay, who received all the blessing. That was a cultural thing. So when he's speaking to that culture, he uses sons both to describe a son or a daughter. And you know, in Christ, neither slave nor free, male or female. So he's not making some pronoun. There's no pronoun problem here. You're included in sonship, men and women. And just so you know, ladies, later on in different places in Scripture, men are the bride of Christ. So he mixes the metaphors. We're all good, right? But it's a beautiful picture of what God has done. There's identity. He calls us. He adopts us. Not as a butler, not as a maid, not as just a handy person who lives in the back, but full, do you see it? Full benefits. The son has full benefits. Takes the name. Debts are clean. You're a son. You're mine. If you go to Ephesians chapter 1, what you learn that the Holy Spirit seals the adopted son and daughter. And if you have that seal, then there's nothing that can separate you from the Father. Not only is there identity, there's intimacy. Remember Romans 7 where he says, wretched man that I am, look what he's saying now. He's saying, Abba, Father, Daddy. You see the intimacy in that language, that there's relationship, there's intimacy, there's identity, and last, in verse 17, there's also inheritance, that he's an heir, that you're an heir. That means that there is a present reality of being an heir of God and a future reality as well, that there's an inheritance waiting on you. And not only you're an heir of God, what does it say? That you are a fellow heir with Christ. That he, as the New Testament would say, he's your big brother. Now, maybe you have pictures of big brothers. Maybe you're a younger sibling or an older sibling, brother or sister. I was the oldest in my family, and I was a jerk to my younger brothers. I had two younger brothers and one of them was four years younger than me, and one of them six years younger than me, and I, I wailed on them, y'all. I'm not encouraging that. I see you. I was mean. I was not after their good. I was not after sharing. We grew up on a ranch, and there were many of fights. There were many of trips to the emergency room. Not all of them were because of my meanness, but a lot of them were. I was a mean older. So now my wife and my brother's wives, when we get together, they're coming after me. They're taller than me now. And so they still try to come after me to make up for lost time. I was a bad older brother. I was mean. And we have a good relationship now. When I think about this picture of being a co-heir with Christ, he's the older brother. But he's the older brother, the better older brother, He's the older brother who loves his siblings, you and me. He's the older brother who wants good for us. He's the older brother who laid his life down for his younger siblings. He's the one who's united us with himself. And not only that, he's given us part of his own birthright. We're co-heirs with Christ. That ought to shape you down in your bones. 
The Holy Spirit, see, grants us sonship into God's family with full benefits. And I didn't plan it this way, but this morning when I, uh, this morning is Orphan Sunday. I don't know if you knew that. Around the world for 20 years, we've celebrated Orphan Sunday in God's church. I planned the preaching schedule this summer. And I didn't know, and about September, I'm going, when's Orphan Sunday? And I looked down, I hope it's Romans 8, I hope it's Romans 8, it's Romans 8. God's providence in my preaching, our preaching schedule. But Orphan Sunday remembers the children in this world who are fatherless, who don't have moms and dads, who need a home. We remember that to call us to involvement, whether that's adoption, whether that's helping other families who are in the process of adoption, to help them, to walk with them, to provide respite care. So we want to highlight that today. There are over 100 million orphans in the world, well over. Makes up about the fourth largest country on the planet. Bigger than Russia if you put them all in one country. There's 500,000 plus kids in foster care in the U.S. Psalm 68 says God puts the fatherless in homes. And what better way to live out the sonship, to live out the adoption in which we've spiritually inherited and have an identity for and have intimacy with the Father than to consider what we as believers can do. And it may not mean that you adopt a child, but it might. It may not mean, it may mean that you give toward a cause. Adoption is difficult. And expensive, but how can we as a church partner? You're going to hear more about Orphan Sunday in just a minute, but what a great application to live out what it looks like for us as spiritually adopted children of the King to engage, to engage with children who need a home. What a beautiful picture of the gospel that is. You'll hear more in a minute. So the Holy Spirit fuels our hearts, our minds, our actions. It, give, it puts us in a new family. I hope you see how amazing the Spirit is. I didn't finish, didn't finish the plane crash story. You're going, what happened? They're up above the clouds, the wrong fuel, the plane's coming down. And so Ed Hendy, who's an experienced pilot, puts the nose just a little bit down for wind shear. If he puts it up, the plane comes straight down out of the air. And when they come to the bottom of the clouds, which are pretty close to the ground, they, sh they realize they're in, I don't know if they realize or not, but they're in Dybal, Texas, the big metropolitan town of Dybal, Texas, off of 59. And Ed notices something. He notices they're right over 59. And it's 745 in the morning in rush hour traffic. Praise God, they're in Dybal. It's 745, and he sees a traffic light, the last traffic light in Dybal. And between that and as far as he can see, there's the road on both sides, if you've ever been there, and there's a median. And there are, there's not much room, but he sees about half a mile where there's no traffic. And as he's coming down, he, he puts the nose down, and they hit the ground, not on the concrete of either side, but on the wet grass. And they bounce about 40 feet up in the air. If they hit the concrete, they go up in smoke. They're gone. 
and they land, and many of them had serious back injuries and other injuries. They land, but they're alive. And they found out after that, for 26 years, the FAA has been doing research on the number of people who've survived a double-engine failure. And the grand total of people who survived that was three. Those three men. All believers in Jesus. You're like, man, we're here for a reason. There's no way we should be here. There's no way God protected us. He allowed us by his grace. He caught us by his grace. And listen, there's a great picture in that story, the full story of Romans 8. You got to have the right fuel. If you don't have the right fuel, you go down. But the story diverges a little bit. So here's the beautiful truth. The beautiful truth is this, and this is your takeaway today. Even if you get your fuel wrong and you crash, the runway of God's spirit-empowered grace is miles deep and miles long and miles wide. Nothing like that plane crash. It's deep and it's long and it's wide. And here's the thing. We're going to put the wrong fuel in from time to time. Maybe this afternoon. But his spirit-empowered grace is deep. The runway is long for you to come back to him. Because you are his adopted child. He's changed your name. You're his. He's taken on all your debts. And all the things, and he has made you his. He loves you. He is there for you. His runway is long. His runway is wide. His runway is deep. Would you tap into that grace today and remember what the Spirit wants to do in your life? Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for your love for us and the way in which you've worked in our lives, the way you're still working through your Spirit. Help us not resist the work of the Spirit. Help us pray that the Spirit would do work in our hearts as we yield to you in obedience and faith. In Jesus' name, amen.